Good morning. Um, shall we please pray? Let's pray the words we just sang. That Lord, take your truth and plant in us. In the name of Jesus, shall we please pray? So, Father, we cry unto you that you take your truth and plant within us, O God. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus and your mercy. Take your truth and plant within us. Take your truth, O God, and plant in our hearts in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray by your mercy, by your grace, O God. A bomb pioneer, in the name of Jesus. Take your truth, Lord, and plant within us. So that by grace we can stand upon your promises. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Um, this morning, we are bringing to an end our series through um, discipleship. We began by looking at the call to discipleship. It's, for, it's a universal call. Every one of us is called to follow Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus, and to be committed to the mission of Jesus. We looked at the mission of discipleship. We looked at discipleship as it applies to wealth. And last week and this week, we are looking at discipleship as it applies to family. Last week, we saw from Deuteronomy 6 that discipleship as parents, we have to take responsibility in discipling our children. That we are not supposed to be just physical parents, people who are just changing diapers and paying school fees. But we are supposed to be spiritual parents, living the gospel before our children and also instructing them in the word. This is the call God has given to all parents. You are not supposed to be just a physical parent. You are supposed to be a spiritual one. Securing the destinies of the next generation by your example and by your teaching. Today, we want to look at discipleship as it applies to family, specifically discipleship as it comes into marriage. So we are in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is from, yeah, he's talking about the nature of discipleship. How does discipleship look like? And the first thing Jesus relates discipleship to is marriage. And I think just this observation shows us how important marriage is to the kingdom of God. We are told, Jesus then left the place and went into the region of Judah and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him. By asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They came 
seeking to trap Jesus. They didn't come as, it's not an honest inquiry that we really don't understand. Sometimes you walk into a building, you look, you don't know where to go, so you go to the receptionist. Please, where can I find this person? It's an honest inquiry. But some questions are not honest. Like sometimes, some of our mass teachers, um, 11 meters plus 2 centimeters, what is the answer? They won't tell you that the units are different. It's a trick question. These people have come to trap Jesus. They want, them to, they want Jesus to say something that would make them discredit Jesus. The question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Marriage and divorce were quite controversial issues then, as it is now. But the question here is a bit surprising. Because in this context, in the time of Jesus, it was lawful for people to divorce. I think what we have here in the book of Mark is more of an abbreviation of the whole question. So, in Matthew, the parallel to this passage, in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Let me just read. So, we have the force of the full question. The same account, it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So, the contention then was not if people could divorce, but what was the grounds for divorce. So here, what we have in Mark, I think it's an abbreviation. So the force, the sense of the question is, is it lawful for a man or a woman to divorce his wife or husband for any and every reason? What is the legitimate grounds for divorce? So there were two schools of thoughts. That answered this, and those days, the rabbis, they interpreted the scriptures. So what they say holds sway. If you are popular, what you say would, would, would hold sway. So one school of thought said that the only legitimate grounds for divorce is adultery. Indecency, that is adultery. The Shammai school of thought. We have the Hillel, and they, they said it's for any and every reason. So perhaps, and even some people will go as far as saying, the second school of thought, if you see a woman more beautiful than your wife, your wife has become indecent in your eyes. It's grounds for divorce. If she cooks and ankoye, you have grounds for divorce. If she screams at you and your neighbor hears, she's been indecent. It is grounds for divorce. If she dances in the street and people see her uncle. She's indecent. It is grounds for divorce. What is the legitimate grounds for divorce? They ask Jesus. In verse 3, we see that Jesus is a Ghanaian. He answers a question with a question. What did Moses command you? He replied. 
in verse 4, we have their response. And Moses actually said something about divorce in Jeremiah chapter 24, 1 to 4. And so they say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So there actually it was God's way. Okay, we'll come to that. So that's what Moses said. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. Jesus' response. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. You see Jesus' response. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. This law about divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24 was a text of concession, not intention. It was how to deal with certain situations, not telling us God's intention for our marriage. How to manage the situation, not how the situation is supposed to be. So that, perhaps if you go to driving school, you are sometimes giving lessons on how to stop the vehicle if your car breaks. But you don't learn how to drive by knowing how to stop your vehicle when the car fails. In the army, you, are, you learn about how to retreat. But you don't win a battle by applying the principles of retreat. So Jesus says that, yes, but it was because of your hard heart. It's a text of concession, not the intention of God. You see, the Pharisees were concerned about the exceptional circumstances in which divorce was permissible. But Jesus, we'll see, was concerned about speaking the intention of God for marriage. You don't learn about marriage by looking at a text for divorce. So Jesus says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The Pharisees, they appealed to Moses. Jesus appealed to a, a more earlier revelation, the order of creation. He goes to the fundamentals. They are appealing to the law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus is quoting scripture. Genesis 1. 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So Jesus appeals to the authority of the order of creation. Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus believed in the Bible. For him, the Bible, it wasn't an issue of questioning. Is this true? Is this legitimate? No. Jesus, the one who died for you, he believed the Bible was true. 
So he courses to them. God ordained union between one male and one female. With this quotation, we see Jesus' view of marriage. With all the controversies that happen, my point is, let's listen to Jesus. I'm not debating with you. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. And you think you know better than Jesus. Jesus says, God ordained union between one male and one female. God made them male and female. A man will leave his mother and be united to his wife. In verse 7, Jesus talking about the man leaving his mother and father and being united to his wife makes the point that now in the context of marriage, the man's allegiance to his wife surpasses his allegiance to his parents. He leaves. And this is a big thing in that context. You remember the commandments? It says, honor your father and mother. It's a commandment. And what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, that commandment was important because Deuteronomy chapter 6, the parents had the responsibility of passing the faith on. But he says, in the context of marriage, you leave. Not that you disregard, but now there's a greater allegiance. You leave. And Jesus says, the marriage union results in one flesh. That is a new creation altogether. Verse 9. And now, this is very interesting. Therefore, what God has joined together. You know, in our marriages, we have a lot of choice. We decide a lot of things. You decide on the person you want. You, want, you have your own list. You have your criteria. He doesn't meet this. You can, you can throw the person off. You decide. You decide your colors. Purple, orange, indigo, turquoise. You know the combination you want. You decide the place. If you want it in the garden, if you want it in the church, or better still, I'm betraying my bias, if you want it in the ladies' home, better still. <laughs> you decide. You decide the date. If you want to marry, have a friend who is marrying on 24th December, you decide the date. It's your choice. But Jesus says in verse 9, Therefore, what God has joined... You decide a lot of things and make choices for yourself. Not under duress. You are free. But once you are married, when you look back, it's not what we have decided to do. It becomes what God has joined. Not what we have agreed to do. Yes, you might sign some documents to make it legal, all those requirements, but it's not what we have decided to do. Once you are married, it is what God has joined. This is an important thing. Any marriage you see, it is what God has joined. 
any marriage, every marriage, it is what God has joined. Even if it's between two unbelievers, even if it's between a believer and an unbeliever, we later on see this principle in the book of Corinthians. It is what God has joined. And it is on this grounds that Jesus says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. If it's what we have agreed, then at any time, we can also agree to disagree. But no, the Lord of the marriage covenant is not the spouse. It's not the man. Sometimes we say, I, do you know how much I saved to come and pay your bride price? Look at the list they gave me. I have married you. You bought the kente. You bought the, um, the coke and the fanta. But the marriage is what God has joined. Not what you have bought. What God has joined. So Jesus ends there. But the disciples, they are troubled. They, they can't end their, dis their discussions there. Verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. Jesus, like what you are saying, is it so? That if I go and marry anyone, immediately the marriage is pronounced and is consummated. God seals it. It is what God has joined. The Pharisees were coming with a question of divorce. What are the exceptional circumstances that will permit me to dissolve my marriage and then do something else? Jesus does not even engage them. He goes to the intention of God, not the exceptions. Jesus says, verse 11, he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. We have to understand well what Jesus is saying. Again, the cross-reference in Matthew 19, Jesus there's more flesh to it. Remember, the Pharisees, they were coming to test Jesus. And for them, um, divorce should be as liberal as possible. And they wanted to maintain that status quo. That I am free to divorce whenever I want. And it's, to, in, it's in that context and with that question, um, that question asked, that is what Jesus is saying. Listen. First, in the in the Jewish law, 
your divorce is only valid if the reason for the divorce is considered valid. So if the reason is not valid and you divorce, you are still considered as married. So if you go on to marry another person, what are you doing? It's adultery. That is what Jesus is applying here. So Jesus is challenging the presumption of the Jews to think that they can divorce anyhow and anywhen. He's denying them that right. Don't be presumptuous and think that you can dissolve it and just marry. Listen, if you do that and you remarry, what you are doing is committing adultery. And now these are Pharisees who pride themselves to be holy, to be pure. Jesus says that on this issue of divorce, if you don't listen to the intention of God, adultery is what you are committing. So discipleship as it applies to marriage. So there are some questions we want to answer. We want to reflect on this, what we've seen here a bit. And I'm sure that is one of the things we are all asking. Does the Bible permit divorce? Does the Bible ever permit divorce? Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Let's read it. Matthew 5, 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Does the Bible permit? It's clear. When there is sexual immorality, there's grounds. But, you see, in the time of the Jews, they say, when there is sexual immorality, it demands that you divorce. So that is how they were applying it. It demands, but Jesus doesn't say sexual immorality demands that you divorce. That is not what Jesus says. So there's grounds. First Corinthians chapter 7 also, Paul speaks about it. Verse 12. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. 
the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So the situation where a believer is married to an unbeliever. You see that Paul is also reflecting the teaching of Jesus. He says that, listen, your marriage is something God has bound together. So you cannot, perhaps, they married as unbelievers and then one became a believer and they said, no, I have been unequally yoked with an unbeliever. I want to dissolve this marriage. Paul says you cannot because this is something God has sealed. So that even if you are married to an unbeliever, it is something sealed by God. You cannot break it. But then he says, if the unbeliever realizes that you are serving God too much, you are stopping certain habits, you want to live for him, and he or she decides, Charlie, I'm tired. I want to go. Paul says that you can praise the Lord. You are free. So that is another ground. So this case is not even actually the believer pursuing the divorce. It's the unbeliever leaving. And then you are free. Having said all that, what Jesus is teaching emphatically here in Mark chapter 10 is this. For the disciple, marriage is for life. That is what Jesus is stressing here in the book of Mark. Jesus does not explore with the Pharisees their grounds for divorce. He talks about the intention of God. Stressing the point that for the disciple, marriage is for life. So the question it raises for us is this. As a disciple, will you seek relief in what is permitted or you commit yourself to what is intended? Jesus says his disciples should commit themselves to what is intended. For the disciple, marriage is not a disposable contractual arrangement. That is why we say you are seeking for a life partner. For the disciple, marriage is for life. So I think it should mean this for us. We are supposed to approach the challenges in our marriage from the position of permanence, not at the threat of divorce. The challenges that we face in our marriage should be with the posture that I am in this for life, not under the threat. If you, if you do it, I will leave. We are Meko always threatening the spouse with divorce. It also means that for us, emotionally, 
don't open the door. In the difficult moments of your marriage, don't open the door to what it would have been. If I had married Angelina. Ah. Look at the guy who came. He has studied and everything and I considered you. If I had married Augustine. What you are doing is that you are emotionally opening the door. Which you know legally as a disciple you shouldn't go through. Don't allow yourself to do that. We have to face the difficulties in our marriage from the position of permanence. For those who are here to marry, if you are going to follow the teaching of Jesus, you see the stakes are high. Those who are here to make a choice. Choose for permanence. Not pocket. Not degree. Not looks. Make a choice with permanence in mind. Listen, let me be frank with you. If in this lovey-dovey moment in your relationship... He is unwilling to submit to the authority of scripture. Do you think that in the difficult times in your marriage, he will submit to this teaching on permanence? Don't shoot yourself in the foot. Choose for permanence. Choose somebody who has already chosen Jesus. Follow someone who is following Jesus? The divorce rate tells us that it is not an easy tax. Don't make it more difficult than it will be for you. Every marriage faces moments of difficulties. Every marriage. Charlie, sometimes you don't talk. <laughs> You have, it's not that you don't have anything to say. You have something to say. But the way they bore you, you don't talk. But you remember that you were a disciple of Jesus. You have to go and apologize. Hey, it's not easy. In those moments, her looks will not do anything. To her. her looks or that he, he has gone to abroad. It's what will make you want to go and apologize and want to build your marriage and pursue permanence. Only Jesus is strong enough in those. Choose somebody who is following Jesus. And it means that even more importantly for yourself, you have to be following Jesus now. If you're not building up yourself now, walking with the Lord, practicing the fear of the Lord, I tell you, 
permanence will elude us. You look around. You see, we all have people in our family. Look around. It should tell you. Choose somebody who has chosen Jesus. Lastly, so, what about those who have divorced? With the hard teaching and clear teaching of Jesus here, what does that mean? Some hurtful and painful things happen in marriages. And for some, it appeared the only legitimate thing was to annul the covenant. But if we will listen to what Jesus says here, Jesus says this, not every ground is valid. Marriage is not a disposable contractual arrangement. So perhaps it means that for some people, we have to tell them you have sinned against the Lord. For breaking your marriage covenant. The grounds on which you pursued divorce. Again, so for these people, we say they have sinned, so what? Mark chapter 2. The Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. For some, it would mean that you acknowledge that you have sinned against the Lord and ask him for forgiveness. You are saved. Not because your marriage never failed, but because Jesus' love for you never fails. You are saved not by the strength of your marriage, but the weakness of the one who went to the cross. That is what saves us. So if we have made, we have blown it, and for some, there's no possibility of reconciliation. You've gone on to marry. The person has also remarried. There's no possibility of coming back. It is seeking the Lord of mercy to forgive you. The son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Shall we pray? you are married here, you want to pray that Lord Jesus as your disciple, let me take on your teaching on marriage, the permanence of marriage that I'm in this for life. If you're unmarried, you want to pray that God will help you to make a choice for life. That, oh Lord, may we hold on to your teaching. Shall we please open our hearts and pray? So, Lord, we pray. It's only by grace that we can stand. 
please renew our minds when it comes to marriage, O oh God. That this is for life. As a disciple, marriage is for life. We are praying and asking, Lord God, that you help us to have this mindset. To have this mindset. We want to pray for marriages that are in difficult and turbulent times. We want to ask for the grace of the Lord. And we are saying that, oh Lord, help the couple to approach their difficult moments, their, their dark moments, holding on to permanence. That they would seek to resolve the issues from the position that we are in this for life. God, give grace. Give grace. And let there be peace. Wherever there are difficult moments and turbulence, the union is being threatened. What God had put together, things and situations, sins want to put asunder, we are saying, oh God, arise and show your mercy in the name of Jesus. Shall we please pray? Oh God, we pray for mercy. We ask for mercy. Lord, marriages that are under duress, that are under the assault of the devil, we pray together. Your desire is that marriage will be for life. So, oh God, supply the grace. Supply the grace in the name of Jesus. Supply the grace, oh God. May the issues be resolved. We pray that you supply the grace, oh God. Let the enemy be overcome. Oh Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Supply grace, Lord. Grace. Grace upon grace, oh God. In the name of Jesus. So Father, we thank you that you have heard us in Jesus' name. Amen.